a close look at the effects of Colorado's gun control push, plus author Mark W. Smith on the Supreme Court's renewed interest in AR-15 bans. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free newsletter today. If you want to keep up to date on what's happening with guns in America, you can also buy a membership if you want to support our reporting. That is how we fund our operation. This week, we are looking at the Supreme Court because it has... uh, we're, we're, we're reading some tea leaves, I think. it's We have an indication of something that perhaps the court is thinking, um, and the, I think there's some there's going to be some important insights to that, And but it's f- fairly complicated uh, legal maneuvering, so I wanted to bring on somebody who has uh, particularly good knowledge of, of this area, and that's why we have uh, Four Boxes Diner host and author and lawyer Mark W. Smith on with us today. Welcome to the show, Mark. Hey, Stephen. Thanks for having me back on. Yes. Can you tell people just a little bit more about yourself before we get started here? Sure. I'm a constitutional lawyer. I'm a professor of law. I'm the author of the new book, Disarm, the, uh, What the Ukraine War Can Teach Americans About the Right to Bear Arms. There's a lot of lessons going on in real time in Ukraine that really vindicate the view of the founding fathers and the importance of the Second Amendment and an armed citizenry. And I want to make sure that those lessons are captured in a short, easy to use book. And that's why I wrote Disarmed. And of course, I'm the host uh, and the creator, I guess, of the Four Boxes Diner Second Amendment channel on YouTube and more that talks about some of the scholarship and sort of the deep intellectual underpinnings of not just the history of the Second Amendment and the text of the Second Amendment, but some of the sort of geeky details associated with these very complicated litigations that go on across America. And since I've done complicated litigations for decades all across the country, in fact, the world, uh, I have some good familiarity with some of the workings of the, the court systems and what the lawyers are thinking and what the judges and law clerks are thinking, including the Supreme Court, because I'm a member of the United States Supreme Court Bar. So I have a pretty good feel of what the Supreme Court is thinking uh, although I can't say my predictions are 100% right all the time, but I think right. they're usually reasonably good. Yes, no one can know exactly what's going on with the Supreme Court at all times. It's, uh, it's very private on some of these matters. They don't, they don't give you insight into their thinking until they, um, uh, full insight at least, until they issue an opinion, which is probably how it should be. But there are some tea leaves we can read, and that's why I wanted to bring you on. We will t- also talk about your book as well uh, when we get towards the end, because I think that's an interesting topic too. But let's start with this new development we have. Uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who oversees the Seventh Circuit, has now uh, issued a request for the town of Naperville, Illinois, to defend its uh, salt weapons ban uh, against an emergency injunction request from a group called the uh, National Association for Gun Rights, which has uh, is trying to get this this ban thrown out. So what what should we take away from this news Well, the way to think about the assault weapon bans in America, I would say the main show right now, though there's a lot of shows going on all across the country, the one that we should keep the most focus on right here and right now is what's going on out of the state of Illinois in the federal court system. Because there's really two parallel cases. Technically speaking, Mm. they have multiple cases, but we don't need to get that specific here. There's really two general sets of cases going on. One has found their way all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. 
being heard specifically by Justice Amy Coney Barrett, although I think the whole court's going to hear that in one second. I'll tell you why that's the case. And then you have the second set, a parallel set of cases that has now found itself in the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the Court of Appeals that oversees all the federal district courts in Illinois. And with the, the, so those are the two parallel paths things. So let's start with what's going on with the Supreme Court. In the case of Bevis versus Naperville, uh, that case uh, originally came out of Chicago land in the area of Chicago, the suburbs of Chicago. There were certain bans on so-called assault weapons and so-called large capacity magazines, which is we know our political propaganda terms for semi-automatic rifles that are very ordinary. Uh, and also magazines that hold more than 10 rounds, very common, very ordinary. And there was a lawsuit there. Originally, it was just against the city of Naperville's ordinance, which was a town ordinance, if you will. But then, of course, it became expanded and covered not only that, but also the entire state of Illinois, because Illinois passed, uh, as a response to Bruin, uh, bans of so-called assault weapons in the magazines. Now, in that case of Bevis, they, they, the Chicago judge made a terrible decision. I've talked about this at the Four Boxes Diner before. I won't get into the details of it. Basically screwed up the legal standard entirely, applying the relevant legal standard when you're dealing with arms ban cases or gun ban cases and got it wrong. The plaintiffs in that case, again, Bevis and the National Association for Gun Rights, they took an immediate emergency appeal to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. The Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals denied their emergency application to enjoin the laws of the state of Illinois and to enjoin the laws of the city of Naperville. The lawyers then sought an emergency application to the United States Supreme Court because the United States Supreme Court oversees all the federal courts, including the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeal, because under Article 3 of the United States Constitution, it creates a single Supreme Court, which is supreme above all, and then a series of inferior courts, which includes the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals and the district courts. So what happened there was you had an emergency application to the United States Supreme Court in Bevis versus City of Naperville, that was assigned to Justice Amy Coney Barrett because Amy Coney Barrett, before she sat on the United States Supreme Court, was a judge on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. So she's the most familiar with the Seventh Circuit, and therefore she was assigned this emergency application. Now, most of the time, and this is what's key, Stephen, most of the time when someone makes an emergency application to stay a lower court decision or to enjoin some unconstitutional law down below, most of the time, the United States Supreme Court just simply denies it uh, with the back of the hand in a polite way, denied, polite, right. denied. That's it. Nothing happens. But that's not what happened here. And this is very important, Stephen. What happened here is Justice Amy Coney Barrett issued an order that basically says, I'm interested in what happened in the state of Illinois involving the Second Amendment and these gun bans. And I want this government, I want the state and the city to come to the United States Supreme Court by virtue of legal briefs and explain to me, Amy Coney Barrett, why you think you can do what you can do. Now, that brief or those briefs, whatever they're going to submit, is due, I believe, on uh, May 8th or so, sometime next yep. week. That's going May to be 8th. sent to the U.S. Supreme Court. And I'm telling you, uh, dollars to donuts here, that Justice Barrett will take the initial look at this. But I think the entire Supreme Court in-house is going to look at these papers 
And they're going to notice immediately that the decision by the district court judge was terribly wrong and inconsistent with Heller and Bruin. So that is the, the that is the main show what's going on at the Supreme Court. But now, Stephen, yeah. well, real, real quick, because well, I, I do want to get to the we'll get to the state uh, level case as well. But uh, so this this decision to request, um, you know, a brief from the defendants in this case, from the, the city. Is is significant in your yes. mind? Yes, it's not. It's not a. It's not something that happens every day. Correct. It's not it's a unusual. common thing. Okay. So and and this uh, was something that Amy Coney Barrett did herself, or was yes. were there could there have been input from other justices as well? When there is initial application for an emergency stay or an emergency injunction, it always goes to a single Supreme Court justice first, and it is the Supreme Court justice. Is every Supreme Court justice is assigned at least one circuit to kind of be the emergency judge. So whenever there's an emergency, Stephen, that comes out of the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, that always goes initially, at least, to Justice Amy Coney Barrett. If it comes out of like the Tenth Circuit, it immediately goes to, for example, Justice Neil Gorsuch. They're all assigned different circuits and everyone knows who these justices are overseeing. But again, it's only initially. So Amy Coney Barrett is looking at this Initially, but because of the nature of this case and the fact that the U.S. Supreme Court is very interested in making sure that the Second Amendment is respected after the uh, debacle that occurred for over a decade where the lower courts simply screwed up Supreme Court precedent and the text of the Second Amendment and didn't even try, they're very sensitive to lower courts thumbing their nose at the Supreme Court. So this does not occur again, which means, Stephen, I'm highly confident that although Justice Barrett, in theory, could kind of decide it on her own, she is going to distribute internally to the whole Supreme Court the papers associated with this emergency application. And I think the court will actually have a conversation about what to do, because what they do not want to happen a second time is another 10 years go by where people are thumbing their nose at the Supreme Court, specifically the inferior courts that I referenced earlier. That's not going to happen twice, and certainly not with this particular Supreme Court, which is why a lot of the lefties are so upset in the media and attacking Clarence Thomas and everyone else, because they really don't like this court respecting the text of the Constitution, the text of the Second Amendment, and the rule of law. Okay, so uh, so you're saying that effectively this case where this local ban on guns like the AR-15 or AK-47 and and magazines that hold, I, I believe it's 10 rounds in this case, the, the standards change depending on what state and, and law you look at with the large, so-called large capacity magazines. But uh, this, the lower courts here have upheld the legality of this law, the constitutionality of it. Uh, the Seventh Circuit has de declined to get to issue a stay against that uh, ruling. They've declined to block the law effectively while the, the case continues on the merits. And so you think that the Amy Coney Barrett seeing this development in the lower courts now at least wants more information to get a better understanding of why the the lower courts and this the government in this case um, you think they can ban these kinds of, of guns and, and magazines uh, and and potentially that the full court is going to look at this on an emergency basis what are the possible outcomes could could they actually do you think it's likely that they'll issue this injunction that the plaintiffs want that they'll block this law well at this stage this this becomes complicated 
for the following. It's always generally complicated trying to figure out what the Supreme Court's going to do, but it's extra complicated here because of that other parallel case I mentioned, Stephen, mm. that came out of the Southern District of Illinois. Judge Stephen McGlynn entered an order enjoining the state of Illinois' so-called assault weapon ban and magazine ban about a week right. ago. So he enjoined so there's a, it. So there's, there's a dichotomy there yes. between in this, and, in this state over whether this these sorts of bans are legal. Yes, exactly. And this is going to make a big difference to the Supreme Court. And let me just explain to you why. Initially, when the emergency application was taken to Justice Amy Coney Barrett by the NASDAQ Association for Gun Rights and Mr. Bevis, at that moment in time, or at least right after that moment in time, Judge McGlynn entered the injunction that prevented the assault weapon ban and the magazine ban from going into effect in Illinois. Now, if that had continued, I could see the United States Supreme Court looking at the situation and saying, look, we don't need to get involved with the Illinois situation because the potentially unconstitutional law has been enjoined by Judge McGlynn in the, in the Southern District of Illinois. So the Supreme Court doesn't need to do anything because the law has not gone into effect. That would have increased the odds, I think, of the Supreme Court doing nothing because they feel like we don't need to do anything because the law is not taking effect. We'll just deal with it down the road after the cases progress in the normal process. But what's changed things is that just yesterday, Stephen, as you know, the Judge McGlynn injunction of the Illinois bans was stayed, which means put on pause by the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, specifically by one judge named Judge Frank Easterbrook, who was the author, by the way, of the McDonald versus Chicago case that ultimately was reversed by the United States Supreme Court in the McDonald versus Chicago case that said the Second Amendment protects Americans against state and local gun control laws. So Frank Easterbrook, Judge Easterbrook, is not viewed, at least in the elite legal circles, as and that I travel in, as favorable to the Second Amendment for many reasons. But nevertheless, the point is that now you have the, the excuse that Amy Coney Barrett could have used to not get involved with the Illinois law was we don't need to because Judge McGlynn has enjoined the law. But now that the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals has stayed that injunction, which has the effect of these laws kind of going back into effect, now they can be enforced. Now, at least I believe, I'm not sure where the state stuff is, but at least I believe in the federal system, those laws are now back into effect. I'm not sure if there's any state injunctions that are still out there, but set that issue aside for the moment. That means now you, you may have an unconstitutional law that has gone back into effect, has become alive again. That now increases the odds, I think, of the United States Supreme Court and Justice Amy Coney Barrett feeling the need to step in because now you have these allegedly unconstitutional laws have arguably gone back into effect because of the Seventh Circuit. Now, to make things even more complicated, just Judge Easterbrook has demanded or has said that the plaintiffs, the Second Amendment plaintiffs in that case in front of the Seventh Circuit called Barnett, Judge Easterbrook says he wants any briefing submitted early next week. So it's quite possible in the next seven days, Judge Easterbrook in the Seventh Circuit could get rid of his stay, which means if he got rid of his stay after looking at all the papers, that means the Judge McGlynn injunction would come back into effect and the ban on the, and the ban of the guns and the magazines would again be turned off and not be enforceable, which again would flip the odds of the Supreme Court acting from 
they might to they don't need to anymore. So the conduct of what Judge Easterbrook's going to do in the next week or so in the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeal is going to increase or decrease the odds of the United States Supreme Court acting involving these Illinois gun ban laws. And I know it's a little complicated, but that's why you have to look at both cases simultaneously because they dictate what may happen. And of course, the flip side is, um, is that if in the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, Judge Easterbrook continues to stay and enters another order, having looked at all the papers, and basically says, I'm going to continue my stay of Judge McGlynn's order that enjoined the laws, if he were to do that, that would actually increase the odds potentially of the Supreme Court acting, especially if the plaintiff's lawyers that support the Second Amendment were to seek an immediate emergency appeal to the United States Supreme Court from that, that case, now you'd have two sets of cases, both of which arising out of Illinois, with all the major Second Amendment lawyers involved, including Paul Clement's firm, who argued Heller and argued McDonald and argued Bruin. Now you have his law firm, I believe, is the lead law firm. So you got all the parties in front of the Supreme Court on what should be an extremely easy legal question, which is these bans on so-called semi-automatic, semi-automatic rifles and magazines are easy cases at the end of the day. They cannot be banned because they're in common use by millions of Americans for lawful purposes. And there's no dispute about that basic fact, which means they're protected. And the Supreme Court, I think, will take notice of that. So again, it's a long-winded way of saying it's complicated, but at the end of the day, it does break down with some straightforwardness. Wow. So the these assault weapons ban cases or this issue over, over assault weapons bans might rocket to the front of the, the line, I guess, uh, when it comes to Second Amendment uh, decisions that the, the court has to make, it sounds like. Yeah. And again, you know, one of the things I've always said, look, I never want to see a bad outcome that hurts the Second Amendment. I never, ever think a loss, whether it be legislatively or regulatory wise or constitutionally, I never think any kind of infringement on the right to bear arms is a good idea. So with that said, there is sometimes the case that bad news becomes good news, because as we've talked about before, Stephen, stupid gun control laws like we saw in D.C. with a handgun ban, gave rise to Heller. The Chicago handgun ban that was silly out of Chicago gave rise to McDonald. The stun gun ban, which was dumb in Massachusetts, gave rise to Catano. And the May issue permitting regimes regime where New York says, basically, you can't have a gun unless you come to me and say, mother, may I have a gun to carry outside the home and show that you're special in some unique way. Those kinds of silly laws sometimes give rise to really powerful Second Amendment precedents by the Supreme Court. So this sort of this this attack on the Second Amendment after Bruin, especially these so-called assault weapon bans, are relatively easy cases. And I could see a situation where, you know, the anti-gunners have, again, over sort of bitten off more they can chew and try to sh- virtue signal to the point where they're going to lay give this lay up to the U.S. Supreme Court to simply enter a short order, basically saying that you can't ban commonly owned firearms. We said that in 2008 in Heller. Uh, nothing has changed. It's still the law of the land. Please follow it, lower courts. I could see that happening uh, in this situation, especially if Judge Eastbrook were to uh, the, you know, continue his stay and prevent the very well-written decision by Judge McGlynn uh, ban, you know, essentially joining the assault weapon ban in Illinois. If, if, that's not, if that doesn't come back to life, I could see the Supreme Court actually taking a step and doing something really unusual and stepping in and joining this law, which would be unusual, but I could see it happening here. Interesting. Because uh, because obviously the other potential outcome, at least from my uh, observation, is is what we saw in the New York cases, these, these Bruin response laws that have been challenged. Uh, one of those cases 
was in a similar situation where it, uh, an emergency injunction re- request was made to the Supreme Court. Uh, the court, you know, took in briefings and then issued, uh, uh, it denied that request, but with uh, a caveat, with a, with some notes, right, um, where, <clears throat> you know, effectively they said that the lower court law in joining, you know, blocking New York's, most of the New York's broom response laws, you know, the sensitive place expansions, all, all the stuff that they have uh, implemented since Bruin was handed down was a good ruling and that the Second Circuit basically needs to move quickly on uh, litigating that case. Uh, and if they don't, that maybe the court would, would then get involved. Do you see it, that could be a, a, an outcome here as well? Or um, or do you think it's unlikely given what you, you just argued there? It's a little bit different. Keep in mind that and this is very important. When, when Bruin was first decided, um, there was a little bit of confusion, not on the part of the people that understood the Second Amendment from the point of view of actually getting it right. But there has been an attempt, in my, in my personal opinion, there's been an attempt by the anti-gun movement to try to confuse the situation with the Heller test. And what I mean by that is Heller is the law of the land when it comes to cases where a government actor, whether it be a state, the federal government, the municipality, it doesn't matter, if there is a ban, complete ban or a ban on arms, such as banning semi-automatic rifles, such as banning magazines that hold more than 10 rounds, such as banning handguns, it doesn't matter. If it is a ban case, you are banned from selling, you are banned from possessing, that is governed by the 2008 Supreme Court decision of Heller that says, if that arm is in common use, by Americans for lawful purposes, any and all lawful purposes, any and all lawful purposes, including possession, you cannot ban it, period, full stop. What's happened is that, that the and then Bruin basically was essentially saying that the methodology we used in Heller is the same methodology as we look at the text of the Second Amendment as defined by the Supreme Court, and then we look to historical analog laws to see if there's any tradition of regulation going back to the founding. But here's the, here's the difference, Stephen. When it comes to gun ban cases, the Supreme Court has already done the work and come up with a test. There's nothing else to be done except apply the test of in common use. When it deals with sensitive place questions, when it deals with licensing questions, when it deals with these other regulatory issues, those arguably still have to be resolved and figured out. You see the difference? So so, so what's happening here is while you're dealing with um, the sensitive place case out of the Second Circuit Court of Appeals there, that I can understand why there was simply a statement by Justice Alito and Justice uh, Thomas saying, we're going to keep our eye on you, but we're not going to get involved just yet, but we're watching. And we think the lower court decision was well, well crafted. It's much different in our case, or I should say our case, but in the Second Amendment's case, the cases involving Chicago land dealing with what we're talking about today, because those are gun ban cases with very well-established tests from 2008. So I think the Supreme Court could take it to another level beyond what they did in the Second Circuit Court of Appeals cases, uh, because the ones in the Second Circuit are dealing with sort of sort of novel issues in a way, but the case coming out of the cases coming out of Illinois. Uh, to the Supreme Court are not really novel. They're really just the Heller case, except you're dealing with long guns instead of handguns. But the test is going to be the same. And it's pretty obvious the outcome is going to be they're not allowed to be banned. Interesting. Okay, Uh, I I can absolutely see the distinction you're making here. And it is one that is is at the core of this case, because 
if you read through the briefs defending these assault weapons bans in Illinois, whether it's Naperville one or the state one, uh, they do rely on this idea that uh, that they can em employ the Bruin test for um, firearms technology that is comes up after the founding era and presents a unique um, societal threat. And they often the argument here, the base argument is that. Uh, you know, assault weapons, AR-15s and, and the like, uh, or even really semi-automatic firearms with magazines that hold more than 10 rounds are a modern creation and that they've led to this uh, scourge of mass shootings, right? This is the argument and that therefore uh, they can reason by analogy and they point to things like Bowie knife bands, uh, billy club bands as examples of uh, founding era or slightly later bands, which uh, address a societal issue in the same manner. So uh, can, you know, obviously you are, you are a very articulate uh, pro-gun lawyer. What is the the response to that point of view? Yeah, there's, there's several responses. It's actually quite easy. And I, although I applaud the anti-gun lawyers for, for doing the best they can, trust me, I, in my career, I've had plenty of cases where I have not been on the good side, not been on the better side. I've had plenty of problems. Uh, you know, you take your clients where you get them sometimes and uh, you make the best argument you can. And I think the anti-gun lawyers are doing a very good job of trying to make something out of a very bad hand. So with that said, I'm not knocking the lawyering. I think they're trying hard, but where they're trying to go is it's not going to get them where they want to get, which is to be able to ban these guns to begin with. Again, the Heller and McDonald case both make clear that when you talk about the right to keep and bear arms in America, and all rights for that matter, we do not define the scope of those rights by virtue of how some psychopath, crazy person, violent thug might misuse or abuse the rights. We define it by virtue how law-abiding, ordinary Americans use the rights. And among other ways we do that is with what Heller articulated was this in common use test. Because in Heller, they said that the District of Columbia has banned handguns in D.C. That that is not constitutional because if an arm is in common use, even in modern America, you're not limited to muskets. That's not how it works. And because handguns are in common use by millions of Americans, which just means they're possessed. Keep in mind, Heller did not analyze how many times people use them in self-defense. Heller did not talk about how many times they were brandished in self-defense. Heller did not talk about how many times people fired guns or anything like that. They just said that millions of Americans possess handguns for lawful purposes. Therefore, it's in common use. And because handguns are in common use, they cannot be banned under the Second Amendment period, full stop. So now you take that exact test and you apply it to semi-automatic rifles. And we know there's tens of millions of semi-automatic rifles in America. We know they're in common use. In fact, we know not only do we just know they're in common use by virtue of all the studies done by like the National Shooting Sports Foundation, by admissions that have been made by the ATF and regulatory findings that say the AR-15 is the most popular rifle in America, not because even the Washington Post has made these admissions. We know this because of a U.S. Supreme Court case, which I always tell people you got to be aware of if you want to be a high-end Second Amendment 
you know, you know, intellectual or high end Second Amendment lawyer, you need to be aware of the Staples versus United States case from 1984, which talks about the, the fact that semi-automatic rifles are commonly owned by Americans in contradistinction with, in that case, uh, machine guns. I won't bore you with why that was important there. But the bottom line was even the Supreme Court all the way back in 1994 in the Staples case was talking about how semi-automatic rifles are in common use by Americans for lawful purposes. So that is all you really need to know. Now, you mentioned this notion of social change. Uh, there were references to like, maybe we need to do something different in the context of some sort of unprecedented technological change. But that is not going to work for many reasons. I won't get into all of them on this uh, on this interview right here. It would take too long. But the bottom line is, there is nothing in the Bruin decision that alters Heller, first of all. Bruin reaffirms and cites, to cites favorably to Heller and the Heller's test of in common use repeatedly. Uh, Bruin also cites favorably to the Catano test. Caetano was the 2016 Supreme Court case that dealt with stun guns out of Massachusetts. And there, and this is the key, in Caetano, there's, they talked about only 200,000, that's 200,000 stun guns possessed by Americans. Again, there was no discussion of stun guns actually being shot, fired, used, effective, nothing. It just simply said the 200,000 stun guns possessed by Americans things are basically in common use and they're protected. And, you know, Justice Alito in his concurrence talks about how semi-automatic handguns are protected arms. That's important because what is the difference between a semi-automatic handgun protected by the Supreme Court and a semi-automatic rifle? There's really nothing except the length of the barrel. They're all going to be protected. But this notion of this unprecedented uh, technological change has nothing to do with Heller, and I'll tell you in short why, Stephen, if you look at the language of Bruin, you got to be really geeky to do this, but, but if you look at the language of Bruin where they talk about this, if we may be able to use, or you may have to use more general analogs in the event of unprecedented social change, if you read that paragraph carefully, it talks about comparable burdens, okay? They talk about comparable analogs and comparable burdens. There is no comparable burden in American life when you're dealing with firearms regulations going back to the founding, there is no comparable burden to a gun ban. Meaning if you go back to the founding, you can find perhaps arguments about there's restrictions on the use of guns, when you could shoot guns, where you could store ammo, whatever it is, you could arguably find an analogs to regulations. But the one thing, the burden, the one burden, Stephen, you can never find at the time of the founding or at any relevant time is the burden of being denied the ability to own a commonly owned firearm. There are no gun bans like that at the time of the founding. So even if you want to apply this unprecedented social, this unprecedented uh, technological change language, whatever you want to call it, is all that does for you, A, it doesn't get rid of Heller, and, and B, it also basically talks about comparable burdens. Again, in American history, there is no comparable burden to a gun ban. There may be burns associated with regulations and what you have to do, arguably, but there is no comparable burn. So a gun ban of a semi-automatic uh, AR-15 or a magazine cannot be a comparable burden to anything that existed at the time of the founding. So that little caveat clause, whatever you want to call that language that the anti-gunners like to point to, it cannot work in the context of a gun ban case because it's not a comparable burden to anything that existed in 1791. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I mean... I think that is uh, that is a, a very persuasive response there, um, and uh, you know certain that two hundred thousand number from uh, Satano I think comes from the Alito concurrence. That's right. Uh, not the not the full um, 
that was a unanimous case, actually. Right? It was. It was per curry. I mean, you know, the Supreme, what yeah. happened was the Massachusetts Supreme Court uh, basically upheld the conviction of a woman that had used a stun gun to defend herself. Right. And uh, in the Supreme Court of Massachusetts says because stun guns did not exist at the time of the founding, they're not protected arms. Right. Yeah, that was mainly curry. about the yeah. about, you know, that. They tried to say there was in common use at the time of the founding was what Massachusetts tried to claim. And yeah. The and the U.S. Supreme Court, not, little, they didn't even have oral argument in Catano. They did not have oral argument. They literally said this is borderline frivolous to ever say anything like this again. The full court came out and said that Americans are entitled to modern firearms, no different than we're entitled to modern computers, modern Internet, modern telephones, right. modern pens and the like. Uh, it's the same principle, just with modern stuff. And yeah, I, again, I think the, but again, don't forget, in addition to Catano, Bruin reaffirms and cites to Heller yeah. and, and makes that yeah, clear that it's still the law of the land. And I think your point about how Heller determined that handguns were in common use is a good one. They didn't rely on how many handguns there are or how often they are uh, fired in self-defense, uh, which is the core of a lot of these arguments about uh, the idea that AR-15s, for instance, aren't in common use necessarily. Uh, you know, I think that'd be hard. It's they're going to be hard pressed to to meet that standard for the most popular rifle in the country to say it's not in common use. But uh, you know, under that under that Heller standard. But but I want to talk a little bit about the book. You know, you have this new book coming out now, and it deals with a fascinating topic, right? The the war in Ukraine and how an armed populace is playing a role there, and so you know some of the uh, the mistakes that Ukraine made up in the lead up to the to this war and and uh, also how how uh, they changed their minds almost at the very last moment. Right. And how how that's played a role as they've tried to fight off a much larger invading army. So uh, can you just give us just the base thesis of, of this book? Like what, why did you write this book? What What is the idea here? Well, I think there's several concepts uh, behind disarm, what the Ukraine war can teach Americans about the right to bear arms. The most important one is it's a real world, real time example of the usefulness of armed civilians, armed citizens in fending off forms of tyranny. Now, in many things that I talk about on the Four Boxes Diner Second Amendment channel, there's many great writings out there about, you know, Mark and Stephen being able to use firearms to to protect ourselves and our family against right. the common criminal. 100% mm -hmm. true. It's absolutely true. But one thing that has not been written about in the sort of contemporary uh, popular literature is the use of, of is, is the effectiveness and use of armed citizens in groups to some degree. And, you know, you get these comments by Joe Biden that says things like, well, you know, ordinary people with guns could never fend off any kind of a nuclear power if they grew tyrannical because you need nuclear weapons, you need this. And of course, Ukraine is putting a lie to that because one of the most important things that we're supplying as America, as the American government is supplying, the anti-gun Joe Biden administration is supplying to Ukrainian citizens are these exactly same small arms and ammunition that they're trying to deny Americans. So here in America, they're saying that these guns, these small arms are useless. There's no reason for American citizens to have these firearms to defend themselves in the country against various forms of tyranny. But these are the exact same sorts of things that we're going to ship to Ukraine and give to Ukrainian citizens to fight the 
you know, the invasion of the Russians. And I think that to some degree, Stephen, is really checkmate on the left because a lot of the people that want to disarm Americans want to arm the Ukrainian citizens. And what's ironic here is that one of the reasons why I think that the Russians actually felt comfortable invading Ukraine was that despite the fact that 10 years ago, Ukraine actually, and I write about this in the book, Disarmed, 10 years ago, Ukraine actually considered adopting a version of the Second Amendment's right to keep arms, and they chose not to do it. They chose not to uh, adopt a private gun culture, a self-defense gun culture, not to make private civilian firearms ubiquitous like we have here in the United States. Instead, they went the opposite direction, and lo and behold, you know, the Russians invaded. Now, whether or not you had, you know, a, 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 a guy with a gun behind every blade of grass in Ukraine without stop Putin? I don't know. It certainly worked okay with the Japanese and Germans in World War II. And of course, beyond that, and you know, it's interesting, Stephen, because a lot of the anti-gunners like the Joe Bynes of the world, the Eric Stallwells of the world, they make comments like, well, you better you better have a nuclear weapon if you want to fend off a government tyrant. But of course, that's clearly proven false by virtue of Ukraine, because the Russians do have nuclear weapons, and yet we're shipping small arms to Ukrainians for the citizens to use. And when the Russians invaded, the government of Ukraine handed out, you know, ten, I think you wrote it about this in the reload. You did great reporting on this, Stephen. You know, they handed out tens of thousands of fully automatic weapons to Ukrainian citizens unfamiliar with firearms. So obviously the Ukrainian government thought that small arms in the hands of citizens could make a difference against a nuclear power. So this really all puts, I view it as a checkmate on the left's arguments against guns. Because the one thing I can assure you we're not doing when it comes to the Ukraine is we are not sending over gun-free zone signs and posting on the border of the Russian-Ukrainian border there and thinking that's going to work because it certainly would be cheaper for the American taxpayer to send over signs to say no guns allowed than to send over all the guns. And I think all this stuff had to be put together to really show that the founding fathers that adopted the Second Amendment and codified our right to bear arms in the Second Amendment, the wisdom of what the founding fathers thought about the importance of armed citizens is demonstrated by the virtue of the fact that here in America, we really are not in great threat of being invaded in part because of our armed citizens and the fact that we know how to use firearms. In contrast, in Ukraine, you have just the opposite, where they're not as familiar, they weren't as proficient, they did not have all the guns that we have here in the United States, and now they're basically begging for guns when, frankly, they should have prepared ahead of time. Uh, But let's hope that we can learn from the lessons the Ukraine made in not properly preparing their citizens for a potential tyrannical invasion. And again, you never know what the tyranny, what form the tyranny takes. It could be a common criminal. It could be domestic uh, disturbance. It could be, uh, you know, it could be another 2020 riot situation. You just don't know because there are things called black swan event, which means things that no one foresees, no one predicts, and they just come upon us like 9-11. And, you know, you got what you got. And if you haven't prepared, well, you know, you could be in trouble like the Ukrainians were uh, at the time of the Russian invasion. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I think we talk a lot, especially about, especially in the gun owning community, right? The Second Amendment community. We talk a lot about the, our own revolution and our own founding where uh, armed civilians played a significant role through the militias. And, uh, but we haven't had to deal with a, a potential invasion like, like we see in Ukraine since that point, really. I mean, well, since the War of 1812, at least, I guess. Um, and so, a lot of what we talk about is sort of history or theoretical. And here's a situation where it's real world, right? And it's captured the attention of the world. And and um, not only did you see the Ukrainian government, uh, as you lay, I've read part of the book at this point, not the entire thing, but um, you lay out how they reacted in those early days, right before the invasion by changing their laws to allow people to arm themselves, to allow 
a, uh, a right to self-defense uh, effectively and to, to defense of one's home. Um, and, and then they started handing out guns on the street, uh, basically, um, to, to anyone who was willing to defend themselves or their country. And, you know, we did, we, we have seen a number of stories, and I believe you chronicle some of these in the book, of armed civilians actually making a significant difference at some of the key battles of that early invasion. And, and obviously, uh, Ukraine also incorporated some of these, um, um, you know, armed civilian groups into their military plans and, and leadership uh, as well. So, like, this isn't just theory uh, or, or history. It's going on right now. And, th and that seems to be what you're trying to capture in this book. Am I right? Yeah, it really does put the lie to the notion that no one needs an AR-15, right? No one needs an AR-15 until, of course, uh, a problem arises. But somehow we don't need AR-15s, but somehow now the Ukrainians need AR-15-style firearms and then some. But yeah, keep in mind that one of the most important founding fathers, although technically speaking, he wasn't like an officially a founding father. That was an early Supreme Court justice by the name of Joseph Story, who was appointed to the Supreme Court by none other than President James Madison, who was actually the author of the Constitution. Now, the reason why Joseph Story is so important is he is considered by the United States Supreme Court as one of the most important chroniclers of the purpose of the Constitution and the Second Amendment. Just to give you some context, Joseph's story is someone that you hear, uh, you're, I'm sure your viewers and subscribers are know of because he is the author of the famous Amistad Supreme Court decision that allowed the slaves to go free in that famous Steven Spielberg movie when the Spanish attacked the ship. They, you know, they enslaved and the slaves rebelled against the slaveholders and they drifted onto American shores and there was fight about whether or not these slaves were free or not. And it was Joseph's story that wrote the Supreme Court decision that freed the slaves. Now, this is the same Joseph story that called in his commentaries on the U.S. Constitution and the Second Amendment. He specifically said that the right to bear arms is the palladium of our liberties. The palladium is like the most important part of being free as an American. And I think that when you look at what Joseph Story says, uh, he specifically talks about that the having an armed citizenry makes us free for many reasons because it not only protects us from common criminals, it also protects us from foreign invasions, from domestic incursions, from, from all sorts of things that can go on. And the founding fathers and Joseph's story were literally writing about this at the founding of our country. And it turns out that here we are in the 21st century looking across the ocean to see that the exact same arguments, the exact same principles articulated by our founding fathers in the Second Amendment and Joseph's story writing about the Second Amendment right then and there at the start of our country is all playing out in real time in Ukraine. So the idea that the Second Amendment and armed citizens is a relic of history is being proven false right now in Ukraine and all the Joe Bidens of the world that are supplying small arms with you know tens if not hundreds of millions of rounds of ammunition of small army ammunition to Ukraine really has proven the lie to this, that when they say no one needs a gun, no one needs an AR-15, obviously that's not true. Hmm. Yeah. And I, I mean, I remember reading about a key bridgehead uh, during the initial invasion uh, in a small town outside of Kiev where um, where there, there was sort of a mixed group of, of soldiers and armed civilians who effectively stopped the Russian advanced at that point. And, you know, so th this stuff is playing, obviously uh, there's probably 
thousands more stories like that from across the country in Ukraine as they've been invaded by this force that's you know murdering, raping their way across the country, but but uh, which has not been able to uh, capture the 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 capital city, right? And has been pushed back to this point. I, obviously, the military plays a significant role in that as well. But but I think one of the undercover aspects is this these armed civilians who 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 made uh, in some in some situations the key difference very similar to our own revolution right i mean it wasn't uh it was a mix between regulars and militiamen and uh concord and, and lexington were not uh organized uh, professional armies that that showed up on those fields and um but and then later on you know yorktown was a professional army but you, you really uh need to consider the impact of that armed civilian population on the outcome in our own fight and then what's happening now uh, across the ocean, as you said. But so where where can people pick up uh, this book? When does it come out? Well, the book Disarmed has already has just been released. I'm proud to say we've already hit several bestsellers lists on Amazon literally in the first week, even though I'm just starting to do some publicity with it now. Even on the Four Boxes Diner Second Amendment channel, I've yet to do a full-blown video on the book with all the breaking news that's been going on. So I'm, I'm happy to say that the book is already, already doing well. There seems to be demand for it. And uh, and I'm glad of, you know, you know we, we sort of, uh, the pricing of it and the size of it, it's designed for, you know, sort of ordinary people. You don't have to be any kind of exotic legal scholar to understand it. It makes very basic points. Uh, but of course, it's very heavily footnoted, as you know it would be, uh, so that people can double check all my work and use it for their own purposes to advance our uh, fundamental right to keep and bear arms. So it's available right now. Where can people pick it up? Um, usually uh, everyone buys it off Amazon now. They buy it online. So that's where, uh, you know, everyone seems to buy their books. It's available in Kindle if you like ebooks. It's available in paperback and it's also available now in audio. So uh, if you like uh, books on tape or your audio books, well, you can have at it and uh, get that on Amazon as well. I, I actually am I'm going to download the audio book and listen to the entire thing. So I uh, appreciate you coming on and uh, thank you so much for, for sharing your expertise on uh, what's going on with the Supreme Court and as well as a preview of your new book. Great. Thanks, Stephen. All right. Here we are with Jake Fogelman, contributing writer of The Reload. Welcome back to the show, Jake. Hey, thanks, Stephen. It's good to be here. What, uh, what do we got this week? You got anything going on this week? Did you do anything fun? Uh, nothing fun this week so far, but this weekend I am hoping to go back out on the range. I'm uh, itching uh-huh. to... to I, now that I have this red dot, I'm I'm kind of kind of bought in, and I really want to get pretty good at it because I think I might eventually try to carry it. And if I'm going to carry it, I want to make sure I'm you know the fundamentals are down. I can find the red dot in the window when I present the gun. Yeah, uh, so I'm going to go practice that this weekend. I think. Yeah, me too. Actually, I think I'm going to get some more time in with my carry red dot, and then I, I'm becoming one of the, one of these red dot guys now. I I got another one. This is the, I got the SIG Romeo one. If you're watching on YouTube, you can see it, but it's there. It's basically their red dot that uh, is made for the original uh, P320X5, which I have. So I think that's like the only gun that this fits on, but I got it through the, the instructor's program. So it was a bit of a discount, which was nice. I really should have done that for the the, the uh, macro <clears throat> um but i forgot about it until i was on their website looking at accessories and i was like oh yeah that's right they have a discount program for instructors so <laughs> so i was like all right well i'll pick up one of these and put it on my 320 because 
I think it'll be good to train with uh, more than one gun if I'm going to carry a red dot. So we'll see how that goes. I still have to mount it. I bought a little torque screwdriver and yep. uh, hopefully it's good enough to mount this. It wasn't very inexpensive torque screwdriver. So uh, we'll see. Um, if it comes flying off back in my face, I guess we'll know I didn't do it right. <laughs> But those are our clutch. I will just say after trying to hand tighten a lot of accessories for a long time, I finally bit the bullet and got a torque screwdriver and they are, they are awesome. So, hmm. yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, putting this on probably today sometime. I also did some, some light surgery to my, uh, my holster here for my macro. I just basically cut off the plastic piece that was blocking the, gun from seating fully so that works now um not the most ideal solution but i think sometimes with holsters you just kind of have to go for it it wasn't part of the retention system in this particular holster so i'm still considering other ones you know maybe trying to maybe in uh, that filster enigma I don't, I don't know maybe try to get into the the whole uh appendix carry thing like you we'll, we'll see we'll see if i can get that far along um i don't I, maybe there's a couple other holsters that are that sit deeper that i might might work better with my body type i don't we'll have to see it seems like i have a, a way to carry now that's very comfortable um and also doesn't point the gun at myself at all even though <laughs> i know that's uh an accepted thing inside of a holster, uh, inside of a good holster. But um, eh, maybe I won't switch. I don't, we'll see. But yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go out to the range and try these out and get some more time with them this weekend as well. So I guess we'll both be on the range trying out our new red dots. We're red yeah. dot guys now. That's right. We're fully on board the, the latest <laughs> the latest wave. Yeah. <laughs> so. What can you say? I mean, they've they've come down so much in price, and there's a lot more competition now, and yeah, they offer a lot of advantages. You know, absolutely, it makes sense at this point to me. You know that there's a reason everybody's moving this direction, so might as well. Yeah, no doubt. But uh, what, what we got in terms of news this week? Yeah, so the headlines of the week we got a, actually a few big ones. Um, First and foremost, we have a new ruling from the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals where a judge actually put a stay on the injunction that was issued against Illinois' assault weapon ban. Uh, so that ban is now back in effect after you know almost a week. There, it was you know, blocked in court and people were able to go back to stores and they, they certainly were. But now that's, uh, that's no more, at least for the foreseeable future. Yeah, uh, Illinois had a Freedom Week there for a little while, uh, just like the the California one a couple of years back. This this stay is actually somewhat interesting because uh, the, this judge didn't wait for the actual briefs to come in to, on why um, he should grant a stay. So it probably gives you some pretty good insight into what this judge is perhaps going to rule on the merits, right? Um, which is that he's probably going to uphold this law given. Uh, you know, it's like all these things, tea leaf reading, it's not guaranteed that this is how it will come out. But this is, if you're aggressively issuing a stay before you've even read the briefs in the case, well, I mean, I think that gives away some of your your line of thinking on this, this law. So, Absolutely. 
And then next we have some big news out of North Carolina. The So bad news if you're a permitless carry advocate. The bill that was going to be put forward to deal with permitless carry has officially been killed because GOP leadership actually is not willing to bring it forward. They essentially have said, hey, we did our gun bill for the session. We repealed you know, the pistol purchase permit. That was a big enough lift. So we're not going to take up the permitless carry bill. And the reason that's big is because the way North Carolina's legislature works, if they want, even if they wanted this to be heard next session, they would have to introduce it this session and at least get it out onto the floor. So because they're not even, you know, getting it out of committee and, and hearing it on the floor, it'll be at least two years before a permitless carry bill gets heard in North Carolina, which they may or may not have the same majorities that they have at that point. So, wow. yeah, that's a pretty big deal. Then uh, I didn't I didn't realize they had a rule like that. That is that is uh, very unfortunate for gun rights advocates in the state. Although, as we've discussed before, you know that at least we'll have time. There aren't there aren't necessarily going to be. Uh, constitutional concerns with repealing uh, concealed carry permitting laws like there are with assault weapons bans. So um, that's something we've noted in the past. I think you did a piece on that. Uh, so interesting thing, obviously a, bit, a big setback for gun rights, especially because that's one of the few states where it's plausible you could right. see permitless carry enacted at this point. I mean, we've got 27 already, right? Uh, you're sort of running out of Running out of runway on this policy, at least for now, you know, obviously uh, over time, you may see more states adopt permitless carry that are purple now or or even blue, as you saw with shall issue uh, a couple decades back. But but for now, you know, they're coming up on that hard wall, the political wall. And here's another state where it's going to be at least two years. That's pretty uh, significant setback. Definitely. And it's worth keeping an eye on. Um, mm -hmm. And next, we have a new poll from Vanderbilt University. Uh, of, it's a poll of the Tennessee electorate, and they found huge support for a theoretical red flag law. They didn't go into any details about the particulars in this case, but just the idea of a red flag law. It's up in the 70 percent range. Mm -hmm. um, so that's interesting because obviously Governor Bill Lee has sort of gone out on a limb saying that he supports a version of a red flag law, though he hasn't called it that. He's actually gone to great lengths to not call it that. But right. we'll see if that, you know, changes anything in the political debate. You know, we've seen a lot of support for red flag laws in the past before, and it's not necessarily that, that translates to policy, but still interesting just because of the context that it's that this poll is coming out in. Yeah, uh, you know, certainly red flag laws tend to poll fairly well. They tend to poll better than any sort of hardware ban because uh, this this uh, part of a broader trend with how Americans look at gun regulation generally prefer we prefer to uh keep individuals from accessing guns if they've shown or you know signs that they're a threat to themselves or others generally through you know convictions and mental you know involuntary commitments things like that but but uh you know that that tends to have a greater degree of support that's why you always see background checks are a big um um they, they do really well in polling you know, obviously details come in matter a lot in these things. Uh, people might like the general idea, but it's the details that they may not uh, be on board with, like universal background checks. People like background checks, but you don't necessarily see universal background checks passing when put to a vote in referendums, like in Maine in 2016. Right. And often that's because people start to lose support for 
uh, requiring background checks on things like, uh, you know, sales to friends or, or something along those lines. So a uh, similar idea, I think, here with red flag laws, although I, this is um, a debate that I think is one of the most interesting in the country right now when it comes to gun policy, because it's the first time that I've seen somebody attempt to actually address many of the main critiques of red flag laws, right? The ex parte hearings where somebody can have an order for their guns to be taken from them when they haven't even been informed uh, of the, that they're under, you know, uh, suspicion or um, that they're being accused of being a threat to themselves or others, right? Uh, this, this proposal includes a provision for people to get public defender, even though this is a civil case. So yeah, that's something that's different and a common point of, of critique. I think, um, you know, there's still going to be plenty of issues that crop up. The most important uh, I've seen, I think Cam Edwards over at Bearing Arms had made this critique uh, of this proposal, but it's sort of the base level concern that you'll see among gun rights advocates for red flag laws is that they don't really address the problem. You know, they take away a person's guns, but if the person is really a threat to themselves or others, just taking away their firearms is not, you know, a, a good solution necessarily. So right. people want to see it perhaps um, coupled with mandatory mental health treatment or or something along those lines, uh, which which does get you closer to what most states already have, which is involuntary commitment. Right. Right. So uh, I think there is a mental health component to this order of protection law. I mean, so Tennessee already has like a, a order of protection law for domestic violence situations. And so that's what the governor wants to expand here. That's why he goes out of his way to say it's not a red flag law. That plus the sort of political implications of that term. But um, yeah, I think that there is like a mandatory mental health screening and treatment component to this. So we'll have to see whether or not any of these things are enough to get it through a state like Tennessee, where you've seen the House Republicans there already express um, opposition to this concept. So, uh, but I think it's the, one of the most interesting gun policy debates going on in the country right now. Absolutely. And then last one we'll talk about here, we do have plenty more headlines if folks want to go jump over to our newsletter to check them out. But the last one's sort of along the same lines. It's also about red flag laws, but this is uh, actually in New York State, where the Center Square reports that red flag applications there are up over a thousand percent. And readers might remember uh, a New York judge in one of the regions, I forget which district specifically, actually ruled their red flag law unconstitutional. So you got an interesting dichotomy here where on the one hand, part of the state says the law is unconstitutional. And on the other hand, apparently broad portions of the state are, are really making use of this law. And that's certainly been a prerogative of Governor Hochul, if you'll recall, after the Buffalo supermarket shooting, that was a huge push from her was to make sure that that red flag law got used. And it looks like it, it is getting used. Yeah, that's sort of one of the other major critiques of red flag laws is this idea that judges, yeah, you know, even though this, there's a judicial proceeding involved in whether or not to issue an order to confiscate someone's guns, and, and these are only temporary uh, orders instead of permanent lifetime bans. But um, people, one of the main critiques that you'll hear is, well, a judge is just going to issue these because they don't want to be the person who didn't issue one. And then somebody goes and, and commits some sort of horrible act. Right. Um, 
And and now you see that coupled with Hochul's order after Buffalo, because yeah, Buffalo that that shooter was taken for a mental health evaluation. It's not clear, still not clear to me why that didn't constitute involuntary commitment. Um, perhaps I guess maybe they agreed to be um, committed to this mental health facility once they were taken there by police. But I mean, the whole situation sure sounds like an involuntary commitment to me, but that's the other issue with involuntary commitment is it's like, it's a much harder process to actually go through than, than a red flag law. But, um, but of course you're dealing with constitutional rights. So um, it's meant to be difficult um, or meant to have a high standard at least for, for somebody to be involuntary committed. But um, yeah, and obviously there wasn't a, a red flag order issued in that scenario, even though the state had a red flag law. And so this was a big point of um, criticism at the time. And, and Hochul responded by sort of it's mandating that the police issue these orders. So it's this right. that seems to be what the effect is here. And also I would note too that, as you mentioned, there are constitutional concerns with red flag laws, whether these sorts of laws pass the Bruin test is another uh, significant question, I think, in this whole in this whole debate. But what, uh, we also have a story from you this week, right? The analysis piece that you did on, on your home state and how it's fared in the wake of uh, about a decade of tightening its gun laws, right? That's right. Yes. Yeah. So this kind of was prompted by this week's signing uh, Governor Jared Polis. Um, I did a story on this as well. Governor Jared Polis just signed a bundle of new gun control bills, uh, raising the age to purchase to 21 for all guns, um, a three-day waiting period for gun sales. Uh, there's uh, a, a provision to allow folks to sue the gun industry for you know, gun crimes, so cri- crimes committed with firearms by third parties. Um, so this you know, got me thinking. Well, it's been a, about a decade of you know, several sessions now where Colorado lawmakers have passed a, a bunch of new gun control bills, and it's been one of the few states to actually do that over the last decade. So I thought, let's take a look at some of the crime stats and the suicide stats. And let's see if these gun laws had any effect. And so when I started digging through the data, uh, pretty much in each case, you know, mass shootings are a little tougher to parse accurately, but at least with violent crime and with gun suicides, it's been a straight upward trajectory since 2013, which was the first year when these sort of gun control laws started getting passed in Colorado. Uh, so at the very least, you, you have to say that these gun laws have not certainly haven't stopped the increase in violent gun crime or gun suicides, which is, you know, a huge portion of the rationale for why they were passed in the first place. Right. And and it's not necessarily just the sort of nationwide uptick in violent crime that we saw, you know, during the pandemic, uh, you know, th- there was, this is effectively an increase, continual increase from 2013 through 20, uh, 2023, right? Yeah, no, it's actually pretty fascinating to look at the data because as you said, it's, it's uh, in almost every case, it's year over year, starting in 2013, uh, there's, I think in suicides, there was one year where it dipped. And I think in violent crime, there's some years where it's almost flat. But like you said, it's it's predates the pandemic. It predates some of the spike we've seen nationwide, as you said. Uh, so clearly something else is going on here. And it's and these gun laws are not having the intended effect that these lawmakers who set about passing them said that they would have. Yeah, at least not to this point. Right. And uh, you looked at the neighboring states as well, just to try and give um, a, you know, a broader view. To, so this isn't a trend that's necessarily happening with every nearby, you know, every state that Colorado uh, shares a border with, right? 
That's right. Yeah. So this is a, a common critique when, you know, perhaps gun rights advocates or certain people will say, well, why does the state with strict gun laws have all this gun crime? And a lot of times the rebuttal you'll hear from folks that are in favor of these laws is, well, it's because the neighboring states all have lax laws and it undermines the, the gun safety of that particular state. And Colorado is, you know, it's clear it's surrounded by states that have more or less restrictive laws than itself. Every town ranks Colorado 12th in the nation in terms of strict laws. And New Mexico is 16th, so it's in the ballpark, but every other surrounding state is in the 30s or higher in terms of their gun law ranking. And so I went and looked at their gun suicide rank rankings and their gun homicide rates as well. And Colorado is firmly in the middle of the pack of all these supposedly lax states that have no restrictions and nothing to stop you know, their gun crime. And it's interesting, some of the states like Nebraska, for instance, its suicide rate over that time has been flat. So it's not every state is experiencing these same upward trends that Colorado is. And right. certainly some are, but clearly it's not a, a unanimous thing. Yeah. And that I think is what makes the analysis a bit more interesting, right? Than just looking at Colorado isolated by itself. You know, you got to look at it in context with what's going on in the states around it, which do offer a pretty stark contrast to uh colorado on the on on how they approach gun laws right you know obviously most of the neighboring states are are uh do not have the same level of restrictions that colorado has colorado has enacted um obviously we'll you know there'll still be some time before these brand new regulations come in to effect um but you know i think generally speaking if you look at the large the larger picture in america um, you don't see like this perfect sliding scale of gun violence based on, uh, or gun suicide based on how strict, uh, gun laws are in any given state. Like, it's just not how these numbers play out and it doesn't go the other way either. It tends to be a mix and there's a lot more factors than just gun laws that go into whether your state has a high rate of gun murder or a high rate of gun suicide or, uh, a lot of mass shootings. Colorado has been particularly um, hounded by by mass shooters, uh, unfortunately, over that time period. That was another thing that you looked at is some of the, the statistics on on mass shootings. And Colorado has really fared very poorly, unfortunately. Yeah, it, it's especially based on Colorado's population, its share of population uh, with the rest of the United States. It's a relatively small state compared to the rest of the country. It only makes up about 1.8% of the population, but it's had 6% of the mass shootings of the last since 2013, so over the last yeah. decade. So it's, uh, like you said, we're, we're very overrepresented over in this ongoing scourge of mass shootings, unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately. And it's still having mass shootings at a pretty high rate. I mean, there have been three according to the gun, the, um, the violence project, which That's is right. four more measures, four more people killed in a public attack and excludes, you know, crime related incidents from that, like robberies or, or, so, or such. But, uh, you know, they, they found three over the last two years, right? 20 That's right. since 2021, which is the second most and only California's had more, which is a state that's five times the population. Right. Yeah. No, quite literally the biggest state in the country. And and it's worth pointing out because, you know, a lot of these big gun control pushes in Colorado specifically have been prompted by these mass shooting incidents, because as, right. as we pointed out, we are so overrepresented in, in these incidents. And mm -hmm. so the fact that these are still happening at a higher than expected rate in a state that has passed all the laws that are supposedly tailored toward that problem 
just goes to show you that it's not really having the intended effect that I think lawmakers expected. Yeah, same. The gun, the violence project again. The Colorado is ranked the it's the seventh in total number of mass shootings since 1966 under their definition, and the third per capita. And really, and you know, mass shootings because they're relatively statistically rare. Obviously, they happen far more often than anybody wants them to, um, and and are a significant problem. But uh, you know, statistically, the two ahead of Colorado per, in a per capita basis are Alaska and Washington, D.C. And the, Alaska's had two in, since 1966, and Washington, D.C. has had one. It's just that their populations are very small. So uh, incidents per capita, if you have just a single one in a city of 600,000 or locality of 600,000, that makes your, your per capita rate very high. But right. uh, Colorado is... Um, you know, is third on that measure. And they've had seven, I believe, mass shooting incidents um, since 1966. And many of them in the most recent, you know, last couple of decades here. So, right. uh, you know, it, it's it's interesting. And I think people should go and read the rest of it. It's a, it's a member's piece. So um, you'll have to pick up a membership today. But it's a good example of the kind of perks that you get from funding the reload with uh, with your memberships because uh, you get exclusive access to that piece and hundreds of other pieces of analysis and stories that you won't find anywhere else. Um, and you can head over. We have monthly and yearly uh, memberships. By yearly, it's, you save two uh, months worth of payments. So uh, it's good value, but it also helps fund our reporting. You also, of course, will get this podcast a day early and you will have the opportunity to appear on the show and ask us questions in our Q and a uh, episodes that we do every couple months. So make sure you head on over to the reload.com and check out our membership options today. If you want to support the reporting that we do, uh, and if you're not ready to, to make the leap into a paid membership, you can sign up for our free newsletter, which comes out every Friday and gives you the latest on guns in America. You can also, Share this podcast uh, or uh, like it on YouTube, leave a comment, rate us on your favorite uh, podcasting app. Give us a nice five-star rating if you can. That would be delightful and help us grow the show as well. But uh, yeah, that's all we've got for you this week. We will see you guys again real soon.